0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 91 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Artist, the Yogi, and the Limey, an interview with Stella Soulsdorf. My name is Richard Johannesson.
1: And I'm Matt Sabatello.
0: Today's podcast guest is Stella Soulsdorf. Stella Soulsdorf is a 30 year old artist, yoga practitioner, and social media influencer from the United Kingdom. Ms. Solzhoff initially started to experience the symptoms of a tick disease when she was just 20 years old. She believed that they were triggered by her eating disorder. Ms. Solzdorf was forced to drop out of the prestigious University of Arts London because she couldn't concentrate and was too fatigued to attend class. Her health declined even further in 2016 when she started to have flu-like symptoms and throat infections. She also developed chest pain, knee issues, and started to have seizures and facial palsy. Ms. Solzdorf was forced to depend on a wheelchair and her husband. When she finally received a positive Lyme disease diagnosis in February of 2019, she was prescribed doxycycline. Ms. Solzdoff had terrible Herxheimer reactions that increased her seizures. Ms. Solzdorf is still in the beginning phase of her treatment journey and is finding what methods work best for her and her body to fight Lyme. Hey, Stella, and welcome to the program. Hi, thank you
2: so much for having me.
0: we're really blessed to have you, Seller, and we'd like you to begin by sharing with our listeners where you're from and what you do.
2: So I am in the United Kingdom, and I'm unemployed, I'm at work, but I spend a lot of my time doing yoga, and I do a lot of things on Instagram. (laughs) I spend a lot of my time on Instagram talking about yoga and my Lyme journey.
0: So Seller, did you grow up in the UK, or is that a place where you recently moved to?
2: So I've been living in the UK for over 20 years. I've been here for a really long time, but I'm actually from Bulgaria. I was born there and my whole family is from there. So my whole childhood I spent in Bulgaria and then we moved to England.
0: So what was your childhood like in Bulgaria? Did you spend a lot of time in the woods or in the forest or were you living in a more urban setting?
2: No, I was living in a very small town. So it was just, lots of greenery, lots of fields. My granddad actually had like a small ranch and he looked after cows, sheep, goats. I remember always being around these farm animals when I was younger. And uh, yeah, I was always running around outdoors, just doing what normal kids do, just constantly being outdoors.
0: Now, do you recall at any time during your childhood coming in contact with ticks or being bitten by a tick?
2: I didn't even know what ticks were, to be honest. It's not, ticks weren't even something I had heard of until I found out I had Lyme disease. But I mean, I was getting bitten by bugs all the time when I was younger. I think being in, round the fields and around the country and that kind of thing, I was constantly getting bitten by bugs. And, you know, I'd see bite marks and things like that, but it never really bothered me because it was just something that was common. So I guess I don't recall being bitten by ticks, but I was bitten a lot by things like horse flies, mosquitoes, that kind of thing.
0: Now, are you aware of whether or not there are tick challenges in Bulgaria today?
2: Oh, yes. Funny thing. (laughs) Now that I know that I have Lyme disease, I've actually found out that Bulgaria is one of the biggest Lyme-prone areas in the world. And I never knew that. And even when I speak to my parents and family members, like... None of them were like, oh, what's that? <laughs> they all knew what it was because <laughs> they all knew somebody who had it at some point and things like that. So It's very well known in Bulgaria where I'm from, but just it wasn't something that I had discussed when I was a child or anything like that and not something I had learned about. And I guess because I moved to England when I was quite young, it just never came up because I moved to a city. And yeah, here it's all just like... Hustle and bustle and busyness and
0: shops. Share with us what caused you to immigrate from Bulgaria to the UK. And how old were you when you made that that move?
2: So I, if I remember correctly, I was about six or seven years old. I was very young. And it was a communist time. And... My parents were really young and it was really hard to get work in Bulgaria. And my parents just moved to England for a better life, like most people did in communist times. It's not really something that I kind of paid too much attention to because they did a really good job of making sure that it didn't really affect myself and my brother. They made it out like we were going to England for this fun new adventure and (laughs) we were going to start school in England and all this stuff. Yeah, it was like a, an exciting thing when I was a kid <laughs> to move to a different country, yeah.
0: So what was your childhood experience like after you left Bulgaria and then you moved to the UK?
2: Oh, it was really difficult because I couldn't speak the language. <laughs> and I was put into school, and I remember I was struggling so much because I couldn't understand a word of what people were saying. And looking back now, I think... Did I even cope in school, but um I guess children pick up languages really quickly because I picked up English quite fast. And I was one of those kids that used to talk so much. <laughs> and um yeah, I'd always be the one putting my hand up in class, wanting to answer the questions and stuff like that. I was I was really good at doing my homework and all that kind of stuff. My parents used to always make sure that they gave us classes after school as in They taught us. They didn't bring anyone else in. They were teaching us even when we came back from school. They were teaching us English and how to read and write and all this outside of what we were already doing in school.
0: Would you describe your childhood in England to be a very typical childhood where you were healthy and happy and doing all the things that all of your peers are doing at that time?
2: Yeah, I really had a very normal childhood aside from the language struggle I, was, I still have friends. I still went out. We still had going out to the park dates and stuff like that, from what I remember. and Yeah, very normal.
0: So what were your dreams? What were your goals as you were growing up in the UK? What were you seeking to pursue in your adult life?
2: Well, I was very good at things like sports. I was, in fact, I was very into trampolining, which is a type of gymnastics. I did that for a number of years. I was also really into tennis myself and my brother used to play tennis a lot. So I was very into physical stuff and I wasn't sure whether I was going to take the physical route or something in the creative route because I was also really good at drawing and making things. I was very much into fashion, that kind of thing. So yeah, I was kind of going back and forth between the two, but when I did all my GCSEs I'm not sure what you call them in the States but I think it's like the end of high school I'm not sure (laughs) my exam results I did really really well in textile design and fashion and that kind of stuff and so I decided that that was what I wanted to pursue I wanted to go down the creative route and I was my dream was to kind of be in fashion, be a fashion designer, work in the fashion industry and just be creative, that kind of thing. That was my goal. But at the same time I was always staying active. That was just always a passion of mine no matter what I was gonna be doing. I was doing yoga and all that kind of stuff, going to the gym.
0: So did you ultimately go on to formal education after you graduated from high school to pursue these
2: dreams? Yeah, so I actually got into University of the Arts London, which is one of the top universities in the world actually, to study textile design for fashion. And uh, I didn't realize what a big of a deal it was at the time, but they only accept 40 people. And within those 40 people, they only accepted 10 international students. So I was one of 30 people in the UK that they accepted. (laughs) but just at the time I didn't grasp how much of a big deal that was so I was really good at what I did I was very creative very good at making clothes and drawing and all that kind of stuff and uh, yeah so I I started I did a year and a half (laughs) and at the year and a half mark that's when things started to get really bad and I started to struggle
0: When did you begin to first show the symptoms of what you now know to be a tick disease?
2: I think I was roughly around 20 years old. At the time, I don't think I realized that all of this could be related or it could be due to a tick disease because I had gone through an eating disorder. I was suffering with anorexia for 11 years prior to having any symptoms. And um, I was undergoing like I was I was in recovery I was in recovery at that time and in my head I was thinking well I'm experiencing all this because I'm in recovery and it's probably normal and my doctor was telling me it's normal to feel this way and so that's kind of what was going through my head but the first kind of symptoms I started to get were extreme fatigue and um The fatigue was so intense that it didn't matter if I went to bed at 9pm. I just couldn't wake up the next day. I mean, I would wake up, but I would sleep through my alarm and I would just constantly go in late. But yeah, still a part of me in my head was thinking, well, this course is really intense. I'm going through my eating disorder recovery. So you could see how I didn't really pick up on the signs back then.
0: Well, Stella, one of, the, one of the things that we've seen with many of our podcast guests is that anorexia seems to be a part of many Lyme disease journeys. I'm wondering whether or not you believe that the eating disorder was a symptom of your, of your tick disease, or did the eating disorder cause you to have a traumatic event that then caused the Lyme disease to become chronic?
2: Well, through this Lyme journey that I've been trying to uncover with my Lyme literate doctor that I'm now seeing I believe that I was bitten as a child and that the Lyme has been dormant in my body now I I obviously can't prove that but it's what I believe by the symptoms and everything I've been through and because anorexia is so tough on the gut you When I think back now, I can't even believe I put myself through that (laughs) with the whole eating disorder because I'm fully recovered now from my anorexia. But now when I look back, I realize how damaging it is to your whole body, how it suppresses your immune system and how it damages your gut. And therefore, I feel that I put my body through trauma and therefore made me susceptible to Lyme disease.
0: So Stella, are you really sure that your Lyme disease didn't cause the anorexia, and maybe you're being a little bit hard on yourself and beating yourself up about having had that challenge when it was really, in fact, just the early symptomology of your tick disease?
2: Well, t- <laughs> it's not actually something I thought about, but you're right because one of the reasons why I developed an eating disorder was because every time I would eat, I would feel sick and. It was crazy because growing up I never had issues with food. And in Bulgaria, we have a very we have like a Mediterranean diet and it's very balanced and very healthy. And all of a sudden, I started getting these gut issues where I would eat and I would look like I'm pregnant. That's the only way to describe it. And it would happen with anything I would eat, and I would feel Nauseous and I just would feel awful after I, I ate. And so over time, I just stopped eating. And I think it just goes down that spiral. <laughs> it's very possible. <laughs>
0: I think, I think it's very likely, and it's only because we've now done almost 100 interviews, and a very large number of people that we've, we've interviewed have had these similar problems, and almost everyone has had food sensitivities as a part of their Lyme journey. So I'm anxious for you to prey on that and determine whether or not you're just being a little bit harder on yourself than you should be, and recognize that, in fact, that was really an early part of the symptoms of your tick disease, and then, of course, they just took off once, uh, once your immune system was destroyed and your gut was destroyed.
2: Yeah, that's definitely food for thought for me because I never even looked at it that way round. But now that I'm thinking about it, it makes total sense.
1: So Stella, talk to us more about your symptoms and how they developed throughout your college years.
2: So as I mentioned, the first thing I experienced was extreme fatigue. And the funny thing was, is it kind of happened overnight because I always had so much drive and so much energy for the things I was passionate about. But all of a sudden, I was just fatigued. It was just tiredness to the point where I just wanted to sleep and be in bed all the time. That then kind of led to really bad migraines because I was pushing myself past that fatigue. And I was pushing myself to go to unions pushing myself to do the studies and all that I needed to do and it was giving me awful migraines my memory became horrific I couldn't remember my deadlines I couldn't remember what I had to do when I started really falling behind with my work and yeah that that was kind of the first kind of signs that I experienced when I was at university
1: these early symptoms, Stella, seem to be sort of alarming. You're not not able to sleep. You're having these forgetful moments where you can't remember simple things. Were you seeing any doctors at this point?
2: Well, I was still seeing, well, I don't know if you'd call them a doctor, but a therapist for my eating disorder. I was seeing them fairly frequently, but because I was getting better in terms of the way I was eating, my gut issues weren't getting better. And I was still having problems with my stomach but I was forcing myself to eat so in that respect I was getting better in their terms so I was seeing a therapist for my eating disorder but other than that not really no I I saw my GP on and off to explain to him about these symptoms but each time I went to him he always reverted it back to well It's probably because of your eating disorder, or it's anxiety, or it's depression because of your eating disorder. And it was always that. And so it got to the point where I just didn't bother to go see him unless I really had to see him for something.
1: And of course, your symptoms progressed as your college career went on and escalated to a point that you then eventually had to actually step down from school. So, can you walk us through your symptom progression up until that point when you had to leave college?
2: Oh, I just, I wasn't able to keep up with the work. Everyone was way ahead of me. I, I the, the worst thing is, is I didn't even realise how far behind I was until my tutor sat me down and was like, you're one of our best students. I don't understand what's going on. All of a sudden you've fallen behind. You're not keeping up. You're just really not where you should be. And that was the first time it hit me that, oh, this isn't in my head (laughs) I actually am suffering and uh, it's affecting my studies so yeah with with that on board I tried to my best to catch up to to do what I could but it was just too much I had fallen too far behind by that point and I wasn't lazy I really wasn't I always had this drive and this passion to do whatever I needed to do to follow my dreams. And I just, no matter what I did, I just couldn't, I just couldn't catch up. And I had a meeting with my supervisors and I explained to them, look, I'm going through a rough time right now. I'm really struggling. Perhaps I need to take some time out to just focus on myself and then come back and so we arranged for me to take a year out and i i had every hope in me to go back the following year to finish off my degree because i had gone so far already and yeah that year i only got worse that year that i was out i only got worse and i didn't get any answers and i didn't really get any help from my doctor my gp so, I never ended up
1: going back. So, Stella, to put this into perspective for our listeners, this was an over 10 year journey from the time you first got sick until your diagnosis. And now we're sort of approaching the middle part of that window. And at this point, you think it's all in your head and you're having stress and anxiety and recovering from your eating disorder. So, you now step yeah. down from school to try to get yourself straight and then return back to college. But your symptoms progress. It sounds like you may have picked up a job as well in that period. And can you walk us through how your symptoms progressed and how your now professional life was affected by these symptoms as well?
2: Well, when I first left university, um, I did go back to my doctor and I said, I really need help because I've taken a time off from uni to help myself. And his only response was, I'm going to refer you to therapy CBT. So not eating disorder related, but general CBT. That was kind of the resolution he had to help me. I never got that CBT. (laughs) I was put on a waiting list and I never got it. And um, it had been six months at that point. I'm assuming it's the same in the USA, but with our health service, there's always long waiting lists. So you never they, they give you like a date but you never really know if they're going to meet that date that they tell you and it had been six months and I wasn't working I wasn't at uni and I really needed to make money because I was living with my parents which wasn't ideal and I was basically they were they were paying for me for everything and so I needed to get a job and I applied for everything and because I Didn't have a degree. I hadn't completed it. I wasn't really taken seriously by anyone. And I don't know, by some luck or something, I found a library job, which is not something I would have ever even thought about going into. But I was desperate at that point. I really needed a job. I found a job at a local library and it sounded perfect. I thought, "Mm, libraries are quiet. I can sit down. It's just books. (laughs) Oh, I was so wrong. It was a very, very busy public library, and it was on a main high street, and so it was full of people. I was constantly doing events, going to schools, hosting meetings and things like that, and then I just started to get very, very dizzy. A couple of times I fainted at work, just like that. I just would get dizzy and faint, and yeah. I started to get really bad anxiety because I was worried that I was going to faint at work. (laughs) So I started to get really bad anxiety. And then, yeah, I had so many meetings about why does this keep happening? And why don't I have a medical reason to why this is happening? And I just couldn't give them a medical reason because I didn't have answers myself. And so they couldn't help me because I didn't know what was wrong with me. So it was just a very difficult situation.
1: So Stella, as, as this 10 year window now is progressing deeper and deeper to the latter end of it, you now are getting worse and worse and worse. You're having these now neurological symptoms. You're having seizures, you're, you're fainting. Did you make a decision now to step down or at least reduce your hours at work to try to figure out what was going on with your health?
2: Yeah. So I had a meeting with my manager and we both decided that it would be a good idea for me to go part-time and still in my head i was thinking perhaps all my symptoms are because this job is really challenging and it's really demanding and perhaps i've just got burnout or something that a lot of people get sometimes in demanding jobs and i thought well let's go part-time and see if this helps me i went part-time for about six months and absolutely nothing changed it was as if I didn't even go part-time. I didn't even notice the difference, which is really weird to say. And a lot of that time where I went part-time, I've kind of like blacked out because I don't even remember most of it. (laughs) It's just like, there's lots of pockets where I don't even remember what happened during that time when I went part-time.
1: About How many years into your journey are you now? Now you're part-time, you're getting worse and worse and worse. Is this five years in, six years in, eight years in? How many years in from being sick?
2: About five years. Yeah.
1: And five years into your health journey, you still think that this is mental health related to try to reduce your stress and to try to just attack it from a psychological perspective, not an actual physical perspective. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, my doctor was saying to me, well, you're young, you're fit, you're healthy, you're doing all the right things. It can't be anything other than anxiety and depression. And I was thinking, well, he's a doctor. He knows best. I'm not medically trained. He must be right. That's literally what I was thinking.
1: Since you're now at the five year mark and nothing has been improving, are your doctors prescribing you things for what they perceive to be a mental health illness?
2: Well they tried to but because I had been on fluoxetine which is an antidepressant for many years when I had my eating disorder it wasn't something I was willing to go back on because anyone who's been on those kinds of antidepressants for a long time will know how difficult it is to come off of them and it was so difficult to come off of it that I was just not willing to put myself back on it again, especially as I don't believe that that drug was helping me. So he offered to prescribe me antidepressants, but I didn't want to take it. And so there was nothing else put on the table or advised to me.
0: Well, and of course the the antidepressants that they were offering to you weren't working because you weren't depressed. You were suffering from Lyme disease. So it makes perfect sense that you (laughs) you... looking back, of course, that your instincts were right and you shouldn't have been taking that drug again. So, Stella, what what we like to explore with our guests at this point in their journey is how the developing symptoms are affecting you socially. We we know that you weren't able to go to school, and now I'd like you to talk to us about how things are going with your family and your friends. How were things going for you socially?
2: To be fair, I have got a very supportive family, so I am very lucky in that respect. My family does not have a history of eating disorders and in general I guess I'm very lucky that my family doesn't have any serious illness in the line maybe really far along but my immediate family is generally very healthy so they they were not very understanding of my eating disorder because it's just culturally it's not something that happens in Bulgaria but in saying that they were very supportive but because of my job and trying to deal with my all these Lyme symptoms that I was having and trying to deal with this job, when it came to the weekend, I was spending all my weekends in bed. I was not able to go out. I, I would finish work and I would crash out. So <laughs> when it came to the weekend, there was just no way I was able to do anything. My weekends were my recovery time. So when it came to family events, birthdays, anything like that, I just wasn't able to go because I just didn't have it in me. And a lot of my family thought I didn't go because I was depressed or I didn't want to eat food at this event because of my previous eating disorder and stuff like that. And I remember having conversations with like family members and things saying, you know, if you come to the event, you don't have to eat this. You know, it would still be nice to see you. So, I knew that it was a thing where they thought that my issues were due to anxiety and depression and everything to do with an eating disorder, which just it wasn't true, <laughs> so you know I, I would get invited to see my friends and stuff like that, and I would cancel, or I'd have every intention to go, and then, because I was so tired and fatigued, and my and everything. I just couldn't go and I'll cancel last minute. And so I lost so many friends in the process. I just became really isolated. And yeah, other than my job that was part time, I was just at home. Yeah, it just affected everything.
1: You are not alone in this, unfortunately. So many people with Lyme disease go through similar experiences where people just don't understand or can't understand what's wrong with them and think that it's something else. And that's one of the reasons we do this podcast is to raise awareness, to help change that stigma in the world moving forward. Now, over the next five-year period of your symptoms before your diagnosis, we do know from your pre-interview questionnaire that you even had to stop working part-time and your symptoms developed even worse to the point where you were homebound and debilitated. So can you walk us through the progression of symptoms from that five-year mark up to the 10-year mark when you got diagnosed and how your symptoms brought you basically down to being bedridden?
2: Yeah, so I got to the point where part time was just was too much. I couldn't cope. But mentally, I was saying to myself, I need to do this. I need to pay my bills. I need to do this. But I guess work has their own rules and things they need to abide by. I didn't have any evidence that I was sick that I could provide to them. And so together, we devised that I should take redundancy because we kind of had a meeting and they were saying well it's not looking good for you and if you don't take redundancy well you're going to be let go of so it's better for you to take the redundancy and in a way I didn't have a choice and I just knew at that point I had no choice I had to give up work. My manager was really nice in a sense she was saying to me you know you need to try and fight for your case you need to find out what's wrong with you all this stuff but I was so tired. I just didn't have energy to to fight for myself.
1: Walk us through the point where you were homebound and you were dependent on your husband and others just to get through the day and function.
2: Once I left work, I was just... I was still able to do a few things. Like, I was able to, you know make food for myself and and shower but that was it so these were the simple tasks that I was able to do other than that I was just in bed and it's all I was doing for a large period of time my husband said to me let's go on holiday and see your family it will be nice for you you're in your house all the time Because I hadn't seen my family for a few years at that point. So I was just so unwell that traveling was just too much for me. But, you know, I'd been in my house for so long, just cooped up. And I thought, yeah, it'd be so nice. I should just go see my family, take my mind off everything that's going on. So, yeah, we booked uh, tickets to go to Bulgaria to see my family. But in this six months that I had been at home... I uh, well (laughs) I'm going back on my story now but in December 2016 my husband and I call this the sick Christmas (laughs) because I was so sick (laughs) I had really bad food poisoning and it was accompanied by the flu and it just wouldn't go away it was it was so stubborn it just wouldn't go away I had a really horrible throat infection, I had really bad impetigo and for anyone who doesn't know what impetigo is, it's like a type of skin infection that usually is accompanied by a throat infection and it's not something I ever had before, it was so bad that it was like, you know if you fall down and graze your knee and you get a scab, it was like that on my whole chin and my glands were really swollen under my throat. In fact, my glands haven't gone down since December 2016. And so I went to see my GP because so I was like, okay, hopefully he can help me with this. I clearly have something going on. In which case, he gave me a short course of antibiotics. I think it was for like a week. It was just like your typical antibiotics. He was like, yeah, you've just got like a throat infection and take this it will go down. I took it. It didn't go down. Nothing changed. I still had really swollen glands. I still had the impetigo. So I went back to see him. And he said, Oh, you know, sometimes people have really swollen glands. And some people have more swollen glands than others. And this will go down on its own. Don't worry. But in the meantime, I'll give you like an antibiotic cream to get rid of this skin infection on your chin. But i was thinking to myself i never had swollen glands before it's not something that just came up and just some people have and some people don't have because i never had this before but i don't know i took his word for it and i was doing the cream um my throat was still swollen i was still feeling like i had the flu even though it had been three months the cream helped a little bit with the skin infection, which took, I don't know, it took a few months for that skin infection to go down, which I don't think is normal. But I didn't go back to see him because I had such a horrible experience with him. But after that bout of, I don't know if it was the flu or food poisoning or what it was that lasted three months, I eventually went back to see him and I said, Look, I still feel like I've got the flu. This isn't normal. I don't know how I can function when I was already having such a hard time I don't know what to do and then he kind of looked at me and he went yeah I think you have something called chronic fatigue syndrome (laughs) and I was like okay what causes that what is that and uh, he said you know it's something we don't really understand it's something people just get in their lives there's no evidence to say how people get it or what it's about. We just know people get it. The only thing you can do to help yourself is to stay positive. That was his advice to me. And I left and I was I was so angry. I remember I was so angry and I was like crying for days because I thought, wow, he's told me something new that I hadn't heard before, which is this chronic fatigue syndrome. But he's also telling me there's nothing he can do to help me and I just need to be positive. <laughs> oh. so, that, would, um, that would
0: really piss me off too.
2: <laughs> yeah, i had gotten to the point where I was no longer gonna listen to him and believe what he was telling me. I, I was just to a point where I was just mad. <laughs> and yeah, not long after that, I got severe chest pain i thought i was having a heart attack a lot of the time with these chest pains and it was so bad that it was my heart was hurting and i was getting really awful heart palpitations. and every time i would stand and sit i'd get really dizzy i went back we found out i had something called POTS but he also said to me that you know the best thing you can do for yourself is to stay positive oh and I just I almost found it laughable at this point but you know I went home and I was like okay I've got these things that I've not heard of but all I can do is stay positive yay me (laughs) and you know I was just going back to laying on the sofa all day being in bed all day and then I started to get really awful back pain which the pain was I can't even describe it. It was like deep in my spine and if my husband would try to massage it he just couldn't get to it because it was just that deep into my spine.
1: So Stella how did your symptoms regress after this chronic back pain developed?
2: It just started to spread around my body. It started to go up all the way up my neck. It was getting really difficult to move my head. It was going to my shoulders and it got so bad that it didn't matter which way I sat which way I laid how it it didn't matter which way I was sitting or laying it was just excruciatingly painful so you can imagine that really affected my sleep I had awful insomnia even worse than what I already had um so yeah that was basically my life for quite some time and um my husband really wanted to cheer me up and <laughs> to do something nice for me. So he suggested that we take a holiday to Bulgaria to see my family and how it'd be nice for me to just see my family that I hadn't seen in so long because I wasn't well enough and that, you know, it would just be be a nice thing for me. I was a little bit hesitant, but I thought, yeah, it'd be nice. It'd be nice for me to get away, to to move away from way I'm feeling and to just escape in a way (laughs) and uh, so we booked our tickets we went to Bulgaria I at that point I was walking with a severe limp it was really really bad and um, my husband's family and my husband were saying to me I think you need to start using like a walking stick or crutches because you're not walking right I just couldn't fathom that in my head that I was walking that badly that I would need something like that to support me but in my head I was thinking no no I'm going to be fine this is probably a bad injury I don't know why I was thinking that but I think it was because I was dismissed so much by these doctors that I started to believe that I was imagining it in some weird way when I knew I wasn't um so I managed to get to Bulgaria with this awful limp. My family were like really worried about me, the ones in Bulgaria. And they were like, you do realise you don't walk normal? And I was like, yeah, I know. I think it's an injury. I'm not really sure what I've done. And they had all these fun things planned for us. They wanted to take me to explore places. And we have lots of fun um, outdoor pools and uh restaurants and stuff like that but they wanted to take me and I couldn't do any of it because I was unable to walk I was walking around by holding on to walls and like leaning onto things and it was just awful that holiday was awful (laughs) I mean it was lovely that I got to see my family but it was really horrible to see how worried they were for me and especially had them especially since they hadn't seen me for so long to see me in that way um and yes, yeah, so the holiday was up. I had spent the whole time <laughs> indoors <laughs> because I couldn't do anything. I couldn't walk anywhere. And uh, we got on the flight home. And I, was, I remember I was walking through the airport, and all of a sudden, I got what I could describe as a severe burning in my knees. And prior to this, I hadn't had any knee pain. And it was in both knees and it literally just felt like my knees were on fire. (laughs) That's the only way I could describe it. And I was just like, oh my God, am I imagining something new? I don't know what's going on. I was starting to panic, but I kind of knew I had to hold on. I had to get on my flight. I had to get back home. I managed to get on my flight. And then as we landed in London and I was getting off the plane, my, my knees... Got even worse, and I was unable to walk. I was literally just, like, holding on to everything in sight to manoeuvre my my way out of the airport. Managed to get onto the train to get back to my house. And as I got off the train, my legs just wouldn't move. And uh, my husband had to carry me home because my legs just wouldn't move. So, at that point, I knew something was really, really wrong. Um, I was (laughs) crying as soon as we managed to get me home. I was crying. I was in so much pain. I honestly couldn't even believe how I made it from the airport in Bulgaria. Back home to London. I couldn't believe I even made it. I was in agony, but... A part of me was hoping that I was going to go to sleep and I was going to wake up and I was going to be fine. (laughs) And I woke up and it was even worse. I can't even describe to you how bad it was. The pain was so bad. I couldn't even bend or straighten my legs. They were stuck. And my husband had to literally that day go out to the shops and buy me crutches (laughs) so that I could. Do simple things like go to the bathroom. And that was the moment I realized that, yeah, something is really, really wrong. Ever since that day, I've not been able to walk. That was in August 2018. And we're now in 2020, (laughs) coming up to spring, and I'm still not able to walk, still on crutches, still having knee issues.
1: So Let's talk about how that continued on, because that was in August of 2018, and it was about a year and a half later, you got your Lyme diagnosis. So it sounds yeah. like you continued to develop even more severe symptoms after that. Can you walk us through what those symptoms were?
2: Well, my throat infection came back. It was really severe. It, if you looked, you could see it from the front of me, but if you looked at me from the side, I looked like I had a double chin. It was really severely swollen. impetigo came back I developed really severe seizures so I started getting seizures about twice a week at that point Um, whereas prior to that they were they were happening but they were rare and so I started developing seizures really frequently I started to get um, really strange twitching in my face and I would have episodes where I would lose speech I just would go blank and I couldn't talk and sometimes that could last for hours I got really severe numbness all around my body burning <laughs> and I would get what I describe as what feels like bugs crawling under my skin and it was constant it was like bugs were crawling all under my skin <laughs> and um The best way I could describe the pain is I still call it, I still say it this way to this day. I say I'm getting shot because when I get like a sudden surge of pain, it literally feels like somebody has shot me. And I've never been shot in my life. But if I was to imagine getting shot, that's what it would feel like. That's what was happening. And so because of all of these issues, I was completely bedbound. I was completely bedbound for 10 months, unable to do anything. I was severely light sensitive, severely sound sensitive. My bed sheets were hurting me. Even any which way I was laying was hurting me. The pillow was hurting my head. I was getting severe ringing in my ears all the time. These shocks of pain kept coming and going. The seizures, everything, it was just horrific. <laughs> and I, honestly, when I, when I try to think about that now, I almost can't believe I endured that. I felt like I was dying. That's literally what it felt like.
1: So Stella, at, at this point, did you still personally believe that this was all in your head and psychological?
2: No. At that point, no, there was no chance. I, I still didn't know what was wrong with me, but I knew that something was seriously wrong.
1: So it sounds like this was, this was your, your turning point where you decided that you weren't going to listen to your, your National Health System's rheumatologist that you were seeing at this point who said that it was still all in your head, and you seeked a private doctor, a private rheumatologist who ultimately ended up diagnosing you with Lyme disease.
2: Well, actually, I I did see the National Health Service rheumatologist, and they didn't tell me it was all in my head. They they saw me for ten minutes. <laughs> they actually told me that they're running late, on their schedule is late, and that they have to see me really quickly because there's loads of people after me. And they rushed through my appointment. And the woman saw me for for about ten minutes. They didn't ask for blood work. They didn't ask for my history. They didn't ask for anything. She saw me for ten minutes and told me that I have fibromyalgia and anxiety and depression. And I was so confused because she didn't examine me. She didn't ask for my history. She didn't ask for blood work. And when she said that I have fibromyalgia, I went home and I did my own research. And I said, no, this doesn't fit with the seizures and this type of pain that I have and the swelling in my knees. And all these other things. And I decided to take matters into my own hands and find a private rheumatologist at a private hospital outside of the NHS. Which, by the way, is really difficult. (laughs) In the UK, there are very few rheumatologists. And yeah, I managed to find one. And I was so happy because they were willing to see me within about two weeks. Which, were, which is almost unheard of, but obviously when you're private, they see you quickly. And I talked him through my symptoms and we had a discussion. He, he also thought that I didn't have fibromyalgia. He said my symptoms are not consistent with fibromyalgia and that my symptoms sound like it could be lupus, which is an autoimmune disease, or rheumatoid arthritis. And... I didn't know anything about autoimmune diseases at that point. And I said, okay, sure. He wanted to, his plan for me was to do a test, testing me for all the autoimmune diseases he could think of and that we were going to go from there. But in the meantime, he had put me on steroids until the blood work came back because I think it took about two weeks to come back. But he wanted to put me on steroids to kind of ease my symptoms. And whilst I was on these steroids, my symptoms got even worse, which I didn't even believe they could get worse. But obviously now I know that if you take steroids when you have Lyme disease, it actually makes your symptoms worse. But yeah, so I got the call back that my results were back and to come and see him. And I saw him and everything was negative. And I was like, oh, my God everything is negative. I couldn't believe it. I said, what the hell is going on with me? I couldn't believe it. And he said to me, you know what? I don't even know what to tell you. He said to me, the only other thing I can possibly think of that you could possibly have is Lyme disease. But he said, I don't understand how you could have that because it doesn't exist in England. And I've never had a Lyme patient in the 30 odd years I've been working as a doctor. And he said he asked me if I had seen a rash, if I remembered being bitten by a tick, all of which I said no to. He asked me if I'd been hiking or anything like that, all of which I said no to. And he was like, There's no point to even give you a Lyme test because if you didn't have a rash and you don't remember being bitten, it's just impossible that you would have Lyme disease. And so I went home and I spoke to my mum. And when I spoke to my mum, my mum was like, Do you know how common this disease is in Bulgaria? She was like, Everyone knows about Lyme disease in Bulgaria. If you start showing symptoms like yours, the first thing doctors do is test you for Lyme disease. She said to me, If you got bitten by a bug, you would never even know. And um she had a friend who had a son who had Lyme disease so she kind of put two and two together that it's really possible that what I'm going through is indeed Lyme disease and so the following day <laughs> I contacted that private doctor's secretary and I said please I need to see him again so I went to see him and I said look I'd spoken to my mom." She told me about how Lyme disease is really common in Bulgaria. She told me how she knows of someone who had it and the symptoms are really similar. Please, could you test me for Lyme disease? And he was really hesitant, but eventually we talked him into it. And I did the blood test. I got the results back and there it was positive for Lyme disease.
1: To sum up, you were sick and suffering for over 10 years not one national health system doctor ever thought Lyme disease. Then you proceeded to see a private rheumatologist who ran through Mm -hmm. the gamut of autoimmune diseases, all of which came back negative, and then said it could be Lyme, but Lyme doesn't exist here. Then upon your mother's observations that everybody has Lyme in Bulgaria, it's very common, you asked for the test, the private rheumatologist ran the test and you came back positive. Yeah. What was that like to know that number one, it's definitively not in your head. It's not psychological. And now you have a name to what's been making you sick for all this time.
2: Honestly, it was super emotional. All kinds of emotions were going through my head. I was angry. I was upset. I was relieved because finally I knew that what I had known this whole time wasn't in my head, was confirmed that it wasn't in my head. But I was also just angry and upset that i had been let down for so long the funny thing is the first thing that came to my head was how many other people have gone through this and have gone undiagnosed and i feel kind of lucky in a way because i'm a fighter (laughs) but eventually i worked out that it's not in my head and so i sought out help myself but how many people take their doctor's advice at face value and just go along with everything they say and just carry on getting worse and worse and worse. That was what was going through my head. How many people are suffering but are in the same situation as me without answers?
1: (laughs) On that note, what advice would you give others that are in that situation that are being given advice by doctors, being mistreated, and are getting worse and worse and worse and are suffering what would you recommend to them that you wish you would have done differently
2: oh i wish that i just followed my gut instinct and that i would have just went and seek advice from another doctor because one thing i've learned is that you know your body better than anyone and no matter how many qualifications or years of medical school someone has They don't know you the way you know yourself. And so my advice is if somebody tells you there is nothing wrong with you and you keep having these symptoms to just seek help from somebody else and go to somebody else and keep trying and don't give up until you get answers. Because I've definitely learned that for one, a lot of doctors don't know too much about Lyme disease And the ones that do really don't know what to do to help us. And that's just the sad reality.
1: And on that note, Stella, even once you're diagnosed with Lyme disease, it doesn't mean you're going to get the proper treatment or the proper advice from your doctor. So what did this rheumatologist, this private rheumatologist do to treat the Lyme disease that you now had based on the diagnosis that he had given you?
2: Well, he said to me how... Lyme disease is not that difficult to treat. He said, you know, you just take three weeks of doxycycline and you'll be fine. But he said to me, you know, because my symptoms are quite severe, he'll give me four weeks instead of the recommended three weeks and he'll up my dose. And then that way we'll be 100% sure that I'll be Lyme free and that will be it. He said it might take a couple of more months for the sort of arthritic symptoms to calm down. But other than that, I'll be completely Lyme-free within a month. And I was like, wow, this is, this is great. I'm going to get my life back in a month. That's what I thought at the time.
1: And what happened when you started the treatment? Did you feel better? Did you feel worse? How did, how did you react to the antibiotics over this four-week window?
2: Oh, my goodness. I was so sick I remember the first day I took my first pill of doxycycline within 20 minutes I was vomiting I was so sick and the duration of the time which bear in mind was four weeks that I was on doxycycline I was constantly sick or nauseous there was no in between (laughs) and my seizures started to get even more frequent and He didn't explain to me that I could possibly have Herxheimer reactions. That is something I researched for myself and found out because I was so worried by the reaction I was getting to the medication. And one evening, my seizure was so severe. I think it lasted, I don't know, like way over an hour. It was really scary. And I don't know, I was completely out of it. My husband called an ambulance because it was that bad. The ambulance came. They took me to hospital. And when they saw me, when the hospital staff saw me, they said, well, there's nothing wrong with you. We can't see anything wrong with you. You're talking fine. You look fine. You're not seizing. There's nothing wrong with you. (laughs) And I went home. I tried to explain to them that I had tested positive for Lyme disease, that I was on strong antibiotics. And they said, what's Lyme disease? That is literally what they said to me, what is Lyme disease?
1: So still, once you finished this 28 day course of doxycycline and you weren't feeling better, what did you do and what were your next steps?
2: So I went back to this rheumatologist and I said to him, look, I have finished the course of antibiotics, but my symptoms are worse now. I'm now having severe neurological issues. I'm having seizures my knees are exactly the same nothing has changed and you know you told me that after a month I'm going to feel fine and I'm going to be lying free and in my head I knew I wasn't because my symptoms had gotten worse and he said to me what you're telling me is impossible well his actual words were you're making up stories (laughs) that were his actual words to me and I'll never forget that he said that to me and I I didn't have it in me to say anything at the time. I was just listening to him. And he said to me, you know, if I revert back to my previous notes, I did believe you could have lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. And he said, looking at your knees, yes, you do have severe swelling. And he said, it looks like a dog and it barks like a dog, but it's not a dog, so I'm going to treat it like a dog. And I'll never forget those words. <laughs> And so he said to me, even though you tested negative for rheumatoid arthritis, I'm going to put you back on steroids. I'm going to give you those steroids that you previously took that made you unwell. I'm going to put you back on those steroids. I was doing really badly on those steroids. He told me to come off of them when I was doing badly on them. And now he wants to put me back on them when my symptoms are even worse. (laughs) I left his office. I took the prescription for steroids. I never exchanged that prescription, and I never went back to see him ever again.
1: <laughs> now that you're, you're pretty much doctorless, you're the worst you've ever felt. You've been on a failed 28-day course of antibiotics. What did you do next at this
2: point? Honestly, I was just going back to what I was doing. I was laying in bed all day, being bed-bound. I started doing my own research online and things like that. But my husband, he's very much into the naturopathic way. He's very much into herbal treatments and herbal supplements. He's always believed in that. And um, he actually purchased a book off Amazon called The Lime Solution by Dr. Darren Ingalls, who's an American naturopathic doctor. And he didn't even tell me. He read the book and... After he had read it, he said to me, you know what? This book is really amazing. And I couldn't even read at the time because I had severe vision problems. I had severe migraines. There was no way I could read. So he read it for me. And he was relaying to me what this doctor was saying in his book. And I was like, wow, he sounds amazing. Plus he had had Lyme disease himself. And so my husband suggested that we call his office in the usa and see if there's some way we can get hold of him because we couldn't find any specialist in the uk that helps with lyme disease because we were both looking and there was absolutely nowhere in the uk that treats lyme disease and within a few days his secretary contacted us and said yeah we can arrange a skype phone call for you to speak to Dr Ingalls and he's going to go through your whole history and everything like that. And if you have any blood work or anything, please send it over. So we did that and I spoke to him. We, he, he was actually amazing. He was the first doctor I spoke to that made me feel like I wasn't crazy. He completely understood all the symptoms I was talking about. I think we had something like a two-hour conversation and he said yep everything you're talking about is typical lyme symptoms and he said you know without the blood test i could even diagnose you because lyme has always been a clinical diagnosis and the blood work is always used as just like a backup he said to me based on everything i've said all my history, and the blood work I had presented to him, that he said he has no doubt I have Lyme disease. And so that was the second doctor who confirmed I had Lyme. And we spoke about all these herbs and how when he had Lyme, he did something called the Zhang protocol. And so I was willing to give that a go and go down the herbal route.
1: Stella, did you say that that was a Zhang protocol?
2: Yeah. You know, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, whether it's Zhang or Zhang, (laughs) but it's Z-H-A-N-G protocol.
1: And that's an herbal protocol, correct?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: How did that work for you, the Zhang protocol?
2: I found it extremely difficult because it was a lot of tablets. When the package came to my house, so because it was coming from the States, I it had to wait something like two months even longer because it had to go through custom and all this and it was a massive box when it turned up to my house and I opened the box my jaw dropped (laughs) I couldn't believe how many pills were in the box (laughs) and I do highly believe in herbal protocols but once I started it I just wasn't able to keep up with it because it was so many pills I had really bad brain fog so I couldn't keep up with the amount of pills I was supposed to take and because I was still experiencing lots of stomach issues I was getting really bad reflux and so that was really affecting me and after taking them for I don't know I didn't even take them for that long maybe it was a couple of weeks I decided to get back in contact with Dr Ingalls just to explain to him the issues I was having because I was unable to take them consistently just because of the sheer volume of the amount of tablets I was taking. I spoke with him and he said, you know, I actually know of a private clinic in the UK that treats patients like yourself. And he gave me the details of it. It's called the Breakspear Clinic. And he gave me the details of it. And he said, you know, you might really benefit from speaking to somebody in your own country who can see you, who can monitor you, that kind of thing, and see how you go. And we can just kind of change the supplements as and how we need to based on what they say and that kind of thing. So I was like, wow, there's a place in England that can help me. Literally the next day, I called the Breaksteer Clinic. I spoke to them they were able to get me an appointment with a Lyme literate doctor which was incredible I never ever thought I'd be able to see a Lyme literate doctor in the UK within I think it was about a month I waited to see her and she again went through the whole history and everything with me I spoke to her about the previous blood tests I had done and everything like that and so she decided to run a hell of a lot of tests so I had the Armin Lab test done, which is the, the one for Lyme disease. They test co-infections as well. I had a viral panel done. I had a bunch of allergies done. Basically everything. <laughs> I got a bunch of tests done and the Armin Labs results came back. And sure enough, I was positive for Lyme and a bunch of co-infections including Bartonella, Babesia, Cliquea, Anaplasma, Mycoplasma, Yersinia. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I've been dealing with Lyme disease and coinfections and viruses for this whole time, <laughs> not getting any help for it. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> So the first thing she did was she put me on an antiviral medication called acyclovir, because she explained to me how if you start Lyme treatment, it's possible it's not going to be so effective because if your body's fighting viruses, I tested positive for EBV, which is glandular fever, and the erpstein Bar, which is mono. And she said, you know, if you're fighting these chronic viruses, you're going to have a hard time with the Lyme treatment because it's not going to take full effect. She was explaining to me how with all my digestive issues and my gut problems, everything like that, my body is not absorbing the medication properly as well. So that's going to have an issue. I also tested positive for mold and all these other things. And now I know that these are all opportunistic things that kind of, in your body, but it takes something like Lyme disease to severely wreck your immune system for these things to really take effect.
1: So Stella, how did you feel at this point? Because at first you thought you were just battling Lyme. Now you realize that you have all of these co-infections and opportunistic bacteria that are making you sick and it just further complicates your illness. So what sort of reaction did you have when you got these Armin Labs results back?
2: I, you know what, I, I took it a lot better. Because at that point, I knew that there was something wrong. And I knew that the antibiotics I had taken hadn't done anything, because I was feeling not only the same, but worse. So at that point, I felt really, I know it sounds weird to say, but I felt happy because I finally had clear answers to what was going on. And I had a plan and something was gonna be done. So I was just grateful.
1: Still, this was about, what, two, three months ago. This is very recent that you went to the Breakspear Brakes- yeah. clinic and got diagnosed, right?
2: Yeah, very recent.
1: So how long have you been on this treatment with Breakspear? It's just about two to three months?
2: Yeah, so I was on the antivirals for a couple of months. And then I had a discussion with my doctor now, talking specifically for Lyme and Cone section, And we looked at all the possible options and we did look at intravenous antibiotics. We looked at penicillin injections, but she explained to me that because my symptoms are so severe, that I am too unwell to go down the intravenous route. And it would be very, it would be a high risk for me to go down the intravenous route. And so we decided that we were going to do antibiotics. And so I've been on those antibiotics. I'm taking colftraxone, keftroxamine. I might be saying that wrong. And I'm doing regular blood work just to make sure that everything is okay while I'm on these antibiotics. And uh, we're going to review me in about a month's time because she said, you know, if we're doing antibiotics, um, we need to switch up the antibiotics every few months because your body kind of gets used to the antibiotics and then it stops taking effect so she said you know if all goes well and we can carry on with the antibiotics she wants me to do it for roughly a year minimum a year (laughs) and to keep changing them every few months but we haven't ruled out intravenous or penicillin injections or anything like that I'm still very much in the early stages but just for now i am doing this antibiotic route and just really hoping that it works out.
1: So Stella, you are also on, you mentioned in addition to the antivirals you're on first and then the antibiotics that you started after the antivirals that you've been on naltrexone for yep. pain. So can you talk to us about what naltrexone actually is and how it's helping you with your pain?
2: I take it because it helps with my pain. And she explained to me that I have severe nerve damage, which is caused by the Lyme. And because of that, the naltrexone helps to repair the nerves and to basically help me manage my pain a little bit better.
1: How are you feeling today? We know you're only two months into your treatment, and we know that you're finally at a place where you know what's going on. You have the big picture. How are you doing?
2: I'm I'm doing good. You know, I'm still struggling. I still have the same symptoms. My symptoms haven't gone, but... The difference is I now have hope. And I have seen a slight improvement. So my seizures are less frequent now, which is great. <laughs> and I I don't know if I mentioned I have severe asthmatic issues, which I found out through Breakspear as well, because I had really horrible issues with breathing. I still do. But I feel like the the treatment I'm on is helping me with my breathing quite a lot. There would have been no way I could talk to you for this amount of time a few months ago. So I am seeing small improvements. So I'm just, I'm feeling grateful and I'm feeling hopeful as well.
0: I think this has to be doing probably more than you're even realizing because you're not only able to have the endurance in order to be able to speak with us, but you're really thoughtful and you're really careful and really articulate. So I I think, I think you're somebody who doesn't give yourself enough credit for a lot of the things that are going on, including how well you're doing now, because we are unbelievably impressed with how smart and capable you are.
2: Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I think, I think perhaps all the years of being constantly knocked down, has possibly made me made me that way. But I, I'm working on trying to be a bit <laughs> a bit more lighter with myself about how I've coped and everything I've been through. Because <laughs> even just recently I finally managed to get admitted into hospital for all the neurological issues and I was in hospital and this was only at the end of November and, you know, I had the MRIs, I had the EEG, everything. And once again, they told me there was nothing wrong with me. <laughs> so, even knowing that I knew that there was something wrong with me, when they said that to me, I almost found it laughable because I know now what I didn't know back then. So, now, well, I, I can't get out very much. I'm still very much house down, but I do a lot of social media. And I am constantly talking about Lyme disease and my journey and talking about the ups and the downs and trying my best to spread awareness and educate people in whichever way I know how. And I'm constantly getting messages from people saying to me, you know, I never knew about Lyme disease and now I know so much about it. And I feel feel really happy that I could spread the word and spread awareness.
0: And you're doing that beautifully, which is how we ultimately located you. You have a beautiful Instagram where you're sharing really beautiful images and you are sharing really beautiful stories about your journey. And I don't think you'd be able to do that as well as you are if you weren't substantially further along in your healing journey. But even more importantly, I don't think you'd be able to have the kind of confidence you have now to stand up to the medical professionals who aren't diagnosing you properly if you weren't in a better place emotionally and physically. So I think I think your your journey has been beautiful and I think you've portrayed it beautifully. But what's exciting to me, and I'm sure I don't want to speak for Matt, but I'm sure he feels the same way, is that I feel very confident that you're going to Heal substantially uh, at a faster rate than you had before because you're now in a place where you can emotionally and physically take the steps you need to take to advocate for yourself and ultimately go to a a healthy place in your healing journey.
2: Yes, I completely agree with you. I just feel it it doesn't matter (laughs) what any health professional says to me because I know I'm not crazy and I do my best to relay that to others in similar situations. And to just kind of be a beaker for them to see that they are not alone. And there is help and there is light at the end of the tunnel to just not give up because there is help. You just need to really advocate for yourself, which I think a lot of people find hard to do. And I think still now that that's the saddest part. I just wish more people would, would believe in themselves more.
0: So one of the other (laughs) observations I'd like to make is that you started this podcast out by talking about your athletic pursuits. And then you talked about your artistic pursuits. And what I think is really beautiful is how Lyme, your athleticism and your artistic pursuits have all come together on your Instagram. You have this really beautiful Instagram where you are beautifully muscled, very flexible. You use beautiful (laughs) colors and then you're using that to tell your, your lime journey. So, you know, it's been really exciting for me. And I, I think for Matt as well to watch this journey that you've just shared with us, where, where the kid who had a certain aptitude athletically and an aptitude artistically is now, been transformed into somebody who's using those skills and those aptitudes to tell a Lyme journey in a very beautiful and powerful and I think really intelligent way
2: thank you you know I still can't believe that I'm still doing yoga because I'm when I'm in my house I can't walk so I get around on crutches and when I go out of the house I'm in a wheelchair and I'm in a wheelchair that's just how I am I'm really hopeful that I will get out of that one day but I am aware it's going to be a slow journey but I but I'm okay with that as long as I know I'm progressing but I think people find it really difficult to fathom that somebody who's in a wheelchair and who's so poorly is still able to pursue their dreams of yoga and to still be able to spread a message of positivity and despite being so ill still live a good life because i do have a good life i know that i have an amazing husband and i i have a cat and i have a house and you know things are great just my health isn't great but we are getting there <laughs> and yeah i think my yoga definitely plays a huge role in that it really does
0: so i'm going to ask you one last question you've been really generous with your time and your beautiful story but if god forbid tomorrow your husband came in to see you and he said he found a tick biting him on his leg. What advice would you give to him so that he wouldn't have to go through the challenging journey you've had to go through in order to protect his health?
2: You know, I've done so much research on this now. (laughs) I always say to people, carry a tick removal tool with you. Oh, it's so important. I wish more places had a tick removal tool available, but it's so easy to get off places like Amazon now But if he did have that I would say to him clean the area thoroughly with rubbing alcohol and if there's tweezers around just get the tweezers or if there's no tweezers find some tweezers (laughs) get right down to the skin as possible as close as you can get to the tick's head and just remove it slowly just pull up and firmly don't jerk just steady straight up and get it out and then once it's out, just clean the area again, clean your hands, use Robin alcohol. And if you know the head breaks off or anything like that, just again use the tweezers to pull it out. There's no problem. Once somebody has removed it, I would always say, please go to your doctor and ask for a Lyme disease test. And if it comes back negative, just wait a few weeks and get it done again because Lyme symptoms take a while to develop and they won't necessarily come back positive within the first few weeks. And I would just say be vigilant. A lot of us, especially in the yoga community, we do a lot of outdoor yoga, and there's this big trend about yoga retreats, and it's always out in the nature, out in the woods, places like that. And people just go there and they don't really think about ticks or these bugs could potentially cause something like Lyme disease, so I would just say be vigilant, check yourself, look behind your ears, behind your knees and your armpits, all these places where ticks have the ability to hide that you wouldn't necessarily think to look, wear bright colors if you can, and ideally cover up and always have bug spray. <laughs> I can't go anywhere without bug spray now. that is just a must and Whenever you come back from anywhere in nature, camping, hiking, wherever, put your clothes in the dryer at a high temperature. Because I don't think a lot of people realise that ticks can live on fibres for a certain amount of time. So it's important to kill off any ticks that you can't see. So, yeah, I think that would be my advice. And just, just be vigilant. Take care of yourself. Be aware.
0: Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Stella Solsdorf. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Stella Solsdorf, please visit her beautiful Instagram at Stella Solsdorf. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a tick by blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get.